Before I came out, I heard Aaron leading the class for the older kids, and he was asking them, going around, what, what has God done for you this week? What is something God has done for you? And I, I was thinking, oh, it's so great. He's teaching the kids to be grateful at all times, to thank God even for the small things that happen. And then we came in here, and everybody, we were singing the song Gratitude, right? How can I express all my gratitude? My like, wow, that's, that's very fitting considering what we're going to talk about today, because I am overjoyed and excited to remind you that this is our five-year anniversary as a congregation. How about that? It's been five years. On September 2nd, 2018, so yes, yesterday was the day, but this is the Sunday, the anniversary, Calvary Chapel Trustville held its first service in the Cahaba Room at the Hilton Garden Inn. And uh, there it is. And we angled the shot like that because there wasn't nobody sitting behind that camera shot. And uh, <laughs> it was great. And so today, this is a perfect occasion for us to pause, to recall our mission and our vision as a church together. We're going to look back and we're going to look forward because we've grown so much. And I also learned talking to somebody last week, not everybody knows this story. Because most of y'all in this room have started attending very recently, which I'm so grateful for. But something that I need to remember is that not everybody knows all the testimonies and all the stories. And we don't want to rob God of any of his glory and, and shrink the faith of anybody because they don't know what God is able to do. So I want to begin today by telling the story of Calvary Chapel Trustville, how we got here, what God has done. Just, just hitting the highlights. I had to cut so much, y'all. Like, There's no way we'll get through all this if I start trying to go through every ministry and all the stories from that. But I'll just get the highlights and, and then we'll take some time. We will open the Word. We will look at what the Bible has to say about this sort of thing. And then we'll look forward to what God is going to do next. So back in 2018, I had already been on staff at Calvary Chapel in Lynchburg, Virginia for eight years. And I love showing that picture because it looks like a frozen wasteland. It's, it's not. That was just a big, heavy snow. That's why I took the picture. But uh, I worked there for, for eight years. I started working there in 2010. And I came on first as the radio DJ, which sounds very cool. Like I had, a, you know, headphones on and I was spinning records. It wasn't. It was mostly downloading things so that Scott didn't have to worry about that. And he could do all the cool stuff. But I started doing that. And it was one of those jobs. You do this. We can pay you for this. And then that way you're at least at the building so you can do all the other stuff that we need you to do. And that's what I did. Uh, the next thing they had me do was they had me become the groundskeeper at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. So I drove a tractor on that. Uh, that building and that property for a long time. No, keep that picture up. I want to keep these pictures up today. Um, one of the things I had to do actually was we attached the snowplow to the front of that tractor. And uh, after somebody snapped off a piece of the walkway, this beautiful stone walkway we had put in, uh, even though I wasn't the groundskeeper anymore, um, our pastor in a fury, shall I say, said, from now on, you drive the tractor and nobody else. So, but I did that and that was, that was fun, you know, getting out to work outside. And I was also the worship pastor leading the worship ministry or the music ministry. I was the high school youth pastor. I ended up doing college ministry. I did missions. I did counseling. Just about anything you can think that a church does, that's what I did. And I'd been there for eight years by the time I came down. I had been at Liberty University, you all know this story, I think, as a computer science major until the Lord called me out of that through Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest, to which I said, but Lord, I don't want to pray for laborers. I want to be a laborer. And that just sort of had like, you know, popped out of my mouth. I wasn't planning on saying that, but that was the Lord's way of kind of now looking at me like that. You see what I'm calling you to do? So I had gone to school at this point. I had become, uh, well, I had got my degree in biblical studies, more or less. It wasn't exactly that. I got my master's of divinity, 2016, been married for a while, had two children, and I was now itching to go out and plant a church. I had known this is what I wanted to do, what God was calling me to do, and I, I felt like I just couldn't keep still. I knew that the Lord had something else to do, and the plan as we were looking at it was, all right, we, we want to stay in the South if we can because we've got to raise children, and that's the only place I could hope to do that, I think. And then uh, also... I want to plant a church in a large populated area. So I pulled up the list on the Calvary Chapel website and where were the biggest cities at the time that didn't have Calvary Chapels? And that was Wilmington, Delaware and Montgomery, Alabama. And so that got me looking towards Alabama. And I had a brother-in-law who lived down in Hoover at the time. So I figured, well, well, we'll give Birmingham a try. 
And um, I also called Sandy Adams from Stone Mountain, Georgia, Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. And do you know anybody in Birmingham area? And he said, yeah, I know this guy named Steve Holloman. And um, shady character, but you can give him a call. And, uh, <laughs> but I came down and uh, Stayed at my brother-in-law's house. I got there at night and it was dark, you know, so I was a little too late to see the city. But I remember just going out and driving around and thinking to myself, I think the Lord is saying that this is where we're going to be. And I remember also thinking, you haven't even seen this place in the daytime. So, you know, just take it easy. And I really think God is saying yes. Well, the next day I called, well, I'd called Steve the day before and said, hey, you don't know me, but I'm a friend of your friend. Do you want to get together and talk about a, maybe having a Calvary Chapel up here? And so Steve and I met for lunch the next day, and he was just so excited at the thought of getting a Calvary Chapel in Birmingham area. And I, I was asking him, all right, well, Birmingham's a big place. Where do we need it? And he said, Trustville, without a shadow of a doubt. And he used all of his amazing salesman skills to say, this is where we need to be. And he, he closed it. He sure did. And because uh, here we are, right? But having this conversation, Steve had been at Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain. He's like, I, I love the verse by verse teaching. I love all of this. And I know lots of other people that would be interested in this too. And I said, all right, well, this was, uh, this was December, 2017. This was happening. I said, how about I come back in a month and I'll meet with those people and we'll see if, if there's anything here. And a lot of you were at that meeting. <laughs> Some of y'all are, are still in this room from that meeting when I returned and came back. And uh, that was January of 2018. And I came back like this is the door is open. And many people said, how did you know the door was open? Because there was already like 10 people that were saying, hey, let's let's do a church. And I'm like, well, you're not going to find much more of an open door than that. So no point to keep knocking when the first one swings open. And that's what we did. So I ended up. Uh, Coming back, several of our dear friends had already told us, who are also in this room, that, hey man, if you ever go out and plant a church, uh, we're coming with you. And so they said, took them aside and said, hey, guess what? I'm planting a church and, and uh, with or without you, but I'd love for you to come. And that's us walking around downtown Birmingham, just trying to get a feel for the area, feeling what this was about, praying. I remember talking just about what the church was going to be, what we were going to do. And uh, we also started looking for houses and all that. And this group started meeting in my basement back at my house in Virginia, which we called the fridge because it was freezing cold and we could not heat it up. So we all sit there with like blankets on our laps talking about what is this going to be and what are we going to do and what's God going to do and praying for all that. And then it was August of 2018, which was three or four weeks after my daughter Josie Mae was born. So all credit to my wife here. We moved down. We moved and we began the church on September 2nd. So my uh, mother was less than pleased about that particular arrangement. But if you ever want to know how long the church had been around, you see my daughter Josie Mae running around? We're that old because that's how old we are. And we met in this hotel. We started meeting in the hotel and it was, there wasn't a big structured plan of marketing and you know, advertising and all that. We just showed up and began to preach the word and began to tell everybody that we knew, hey, we're, we're doing this, this church here. And we met in that hotel until November of 2019, which that's the, that's the last, uh, that's the group that was there when we first walked over and saw the building and said, this is where we wanna go. That's actually our lobby now. So uh, they had tiled floors and, and looked very different, but said, God can, can put a church here. And so we moved into this space with two units, not the one that we're in, but the one of the children's ministry and the offices. That's the first Sunday in this building. So we were very excited. We finally got to use those blue chairs, which had been gifted to us uh, by Calvary Chapel Emporia, Virginia, and had been sitting in Zach Grafman's garage since we had moved down. And uh, yeah, that was Sarah. I heard her voice laughing just now. <laughs> That's great. And during this time, this is a, a fun part of the story, at least for me. During this time, I needed to get a job, and I worked several little things, but I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, where I would drive around in those big blue trucks you see around. We'd go up to people's houses, and we would uh, haul away the junk. Now, you see me up there on the left with my son on his first day of school, and there, yeah, a lot of memories in this area for us, and I'm in my uniform. The next picture over to the right, you'll see that uh, I'm smiling real big. My wife is less than pleased because... <laughs> That was a day, I can't remember why this happened, but we had to drive to church because the van broke down. We had to drive to church in the junk truck. <laughs> and I saw this as a great adventure and uh, she did not quite see it that way. And uh, the kids thought it was fun. They got to ride in the truck, but uh, that's, what, that's what we did. And I also worked for the radio station downtown. Catlin got a job for a short time until the church was able to bring us on and, and uh, support me full time. So that was... That was not a time I'd care to relive, but uh, 
I'm, I'm thankful for it. I'm very grateful for those days. And uh, Jacob and Zach Borders worked with me there also. So we all took a turn working for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Then after we moved in in November 2019, we started a year called 2020 that will forever live in very boring infamy in my mind. Because I remember thinking during that, you know, a lot of stuff happened during this whole pandemic. Most of it was just pretty boring. And uh, for our case, we got to 2020. I remember March when everything was going down and some folks, it might have been uh, Stephanie and Steve, who uh, stopped me in the hallway and said, hey, so there's this coronavirus thing going on. Are we going to have church next week? I was like, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to have church next week. I'm not canceling church for, you know, the swine flu. You know, I'm not going to do that. And then, of course, the next week is when the announcement came out that, you know, two weeks to slow the spread. I'm not about to get into all that. But you remember how that ended up becoming more than that. And we were allowed to, to open up in our state mercifully and gratefully very, very quickly. But, you know, our church not only endured 2020, not only do we not lose anybody to COVID, praise God, but we thrived and we grew during that time. When we came back after, it was ended up being five weeks, five or six weeks that we did meet, I said, all right, we're going to spread out the chairs. We'll have the, the mask and the hand sanitizer forever wants it. We had more people come to that service than had come to any of the services before that. So people actually ended up sitting closer together because there were fewer chairs in the room. So we had to put all the old chairs back. God blessed us during that time. We never had a financial crisis. People were always watching. And it helped us launch our live streaming ministry of necessity when I propped up an iPhone on a stack of Bibles and preached to that because we didn't have cameras. We didn't have anything at that time. And many were added to our number. Many, I say many, you know, we probably went from you know, 25 to 35 or 40, which was a big deal for us, man. We were stoked. And then we got, to skip ahead here, the end of 2021 is when we began the next construction project, which was to build out this sanctuary. And ever since we had moved in, and we were even looking at this building, I'd seen this room that we're in now and said, that's got to be our sanctuary. The rest of this will work, but this has got to be the sanctuary. And that's what it looked like, believe it or not, halfway through. So that's even better than it was. There was no, it was concrete in here. There was a big old gully that was cut in here for where all the piping was exposed. There was like, people had stacked merchandise in here and nobody know, knew whose it was and uh, like I think was it like a rack of like baseball bats or like baseball helmets and the people told us well if you want it you can have it I'm like what am I supposed to do with that but we built that out and we had our first Sunday in this sanctuary that we're in right now on March 27th 2022 we were teaching through Romans 10 at the time that gives you a sense of how far back that was so here we are still in this spot and, and still in that same phase of life as a church ministry. And speaking of the teaching, I, I would be remiss to not mention this. We have on our Sunday mornings teached, taught, teached, taught, taught, bad when the teacher can't say taught properly, isn't it? All right. We've taught through Luke, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the Johannine epistles, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, Daniel, and now most of Revelation. On Wednesday nights, we've taught from Genesis all the way through Joshua. I hope to start Judges this Wednesday. Might have to be next week. We'll see how the time goes. But uh, we're, we've also done series on the Trinity, series on the attributes of God, all sorts of topical messages. I'm not afraid to do those, as you can see right now. We're teaching through the Bible. Our radio ministry has continued to grow. We started out having a Sunday afternoon slot. Remember that? It was Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. And when we took the step to go daily at 5.30 a.m., that was a big deal for us. That's grown. Our internet ministries are growing. We're streaming to Facebook and YouTube now, which is awesome. We're averaging something like 4,000 views a month on YouTube right now which is amazing. That's not very big, I, I know, by YouTube standards, but by our standards, that's pretty great. That's pretty exciting. We haven't had very many mean comments lately, though, so that's been kind of disappointing. <laughs> I was sort of hoping that through Revelation, we'd see some of the crazy come out, but we haven't, so I guess that's a good thing. Praise the Lord. <laughs> We're continuing to develop new resources with the books that are being put out, with the podcasts that we're recording now. We're serving in the schools, in the prisons, the pregnancy center. Do you remember why we chose those three ministries? It was during 2020 when everybody was so angry. Remember, 
like they still are, but you know, especially back then, angry about all sorts of things. And the things that were in the air are what's going on in public schools, what's going on in the prisons, what's going on with abortion. And so the Lord led us to say, we, we have very strong feelings about these things, but it's not good enough just for us to have good feelings. We want to take the gospel and go to those places and do not just good work, but do good work in Jesus' name for the gospel's sake. Because the Lord sends his Christians almost like secret agents. Like we have a, a different agenda and a different plan. It's a kingdom agenda that the Lord has. And we see the same problems, but we do not have the same solutions as everybody else. We know the truth. And so that's what we did. And we've continued to do that. We had our first missions trip this year. We tried for some time to get it, but we were able to go to Uganda. I was able to go to Peru. I'm finally getting to go back to Nepal in November this year, which is awesome. We're planning another trip to Uganda. I plan to bug Corey while I am at the conference this week and let him know, hey, we need to go to Peru, man. You need to stop ducking my calls. I'm sure he's not. Maybe he just doesn't want us there, but we're coming. Sorry, Corey. That's what we're doing. And not only that, we have seen more miracles of healing in this church that I can count on both my hands. The first one, oh, see, everybody got all, God, this is what I don't like. Everybody got all like, okay, well, prove it to me first. We're excited. Yeah, we're excited about all this stuff. The Lord has done miracles in this place. If God has healed you specifically of your, in your body in this church, would you please raise your hand so we can see you? Yeah, how you like that? Yeah, how about that? Awesome. Don't tell me God is not still healing people. I've seen it happen too many times. Emily Gibson was the first one that the Lord healed of pre-arthritis in our back, back in the, in the old sanctuary. And I was so just bouncing up on top of my tippy toes and, hey, everybody, guess what, you know? And you think that's how you react all the time, but it's amazing what you can get used to. We've seen the Lord heal somebody of cancer through the laying on of hands. We've seen spiritual afflictions lifted. Uh, when I went to Peru and led the, the congregational prayer meeting at one of these churches, the Lord was just, I mean, everybody was getting healed. And like strange things, not like evil things, but things that you wouldn't expect the Lord was doing through the ministry there. That, that's what's happening through this congregation. Praise the Lord. This is so great what is happening here, what has happened and will continue to happen. But when I consider how many people have yet to be saved, when I consider the biblical illiteracy of the American church, why does Calvary Chapel teach the way we do? Because until we fix that, that's the most important thing. When I consider how most churches in America are quenching the Holy Spirit, not allowing the Holy Spirit to have his say and have his due and to pour out his gifts on the church and don't even want to ask for the Lord to heal the body because what if something doesn't happen? When I consider the distractions that the world is throwing at God's people so that they're more interested in what's happening online or in some other state than their own life and the gospel doesn't mean as much to them as what their favorite podcaster says, I look at all this and I feel like we've barely begun. I, I sit back and I go, it's been five years already? I just got here. Even though really I haven't just got here. It's been five years. High school felt like forever. This has been longer than that. And when I have that attitude, I'm not ungrateful for anything that happened. But I think, Lord, you've called us down here to do what we've done, but I know there's yet more to be done. And that brings to my mind a section of a passage we discussed a few Wednesdays ago. So if you will turn your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 17. This is a story I've read through the Bible many times. But I missed this one somehow. <laughs> I missed this one. And every now and then, one of these little stories jumps out at you. And we're going to look at Joshua 17. I'm going to read verses 12 through 13 to start out. And if you blink, you'd miss this as you read through Joshua. But let's look at this story. This is after all the big victories of Jericho and the battle at Ai and Gibeah and all that. Yet the people, verse 12, of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. We'll stop right there. We'll finish this section in a bit. 
This is after all the famous stories you've heard in Joshua, when they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, marched around the walls of Jericho, and they all came a-tumbling down. When the sun stood still in the sky, maybe the greatest miracle in the Bible other than the resurrection and the incarnation. What they got to, after they had beaten a southern and a northern coalition, Joshua was getting older, according to the text, and at chapter 13, God tells him, divide up the land between all the different tribes. And the tribes were therefore to go back to the land that had been allotted to them, and they themselves were to finish clearing out the tribes that were living in their territory. So whereas before the army had moved as one, and they were fighting the northern coalition together as one, the southern as one, they would march around Jericho as one. Now, everybody go home. The back of Canaan has been broken. There's no more great powers, but it's your job to take possession of all the cities that God has given to you. That's where we're standing. And we just read the section where the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, Josh, uh, Joseph gave, got a double portion of the blessing, if you remember. And they've been listing all the cities they were supposed to get. But we see here that the tribe of Manasseh was not able to drive out the Canaanites in their section of the promised land. It says they put them to forced labor, which is good, meaning they were a subjugated people, but they were unable to attain that total victory. If you read through this passage, there's hints that are given that there were armies living in the forest. That when they try to go through the forest and they try to take possession of it, there is maybe a Robin Hood kind of thing going on. I don't know. Guerrilla warfare. Just hit it and get out of there. Hit and run kind of warfare. And then out on the plains as well, there were armies that were encamped there that they were unable to get rid of. So dangerous foes in the land that was supposed to be theirs, even though they had already won all these mighty victories with the Lord. This is the lesson we can learn. Rapid success without eventual progress can be one of the most frustrating situations a man can face. When you have a bunch of early successes that come quickly and come easily, and you think, man, this is great. We're just going to stroll through. And then it seems to stall. And it stalls for longer and longer and longer. And those initial victories start to seem less mighty and more almost embarrassing than your current state. Maybe if we can apply this personally to your walk with the Lord Jesus, you get saved and the Lord right away removes a bunch of obvious things. Your language cleans up. You're not tempted to go out and party every night. Or maybe your relationship with your father gets repaired in a mighty moment. Wow, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. But then it seems past that there's not a lot of growth that's happening. Maybe there's other areas of temptation where you're falling short. Maybe you just can't seem to discipline yourself to study the word the way you know you ought to. Maybe you've still got that temper that you're not being stimulated by the, the drugs anymore or whatever it may be, but you're, you still just can't control yourself the way you ought to. That can be very frustrating. And it can be embarrassing too because everybody has seen what a radical change has been worked in your life. But now since you're not moving forward, you, you might want to keep to yourself so that nobody finds out that you're a fraud as you see it. Maybe you've got a business that is established and it's established quickly and you get a baseline and you get the, the foundation laid and you're established, you're not really going anywhere, but the growth never really comes. And you start seeing other businesses like yours that come in and maybe they started before you did and you passed them very quickly, but now they're slowly and steadily overtaking you and you're just becoming one of the crowd again. That can be very frustrating. Maybe you were in school Catlin and I were packing up all our stuff to move into the new house this week, and uh, my mother had given us this little folder of all the awards and, and things that I won when I was in school, and it's all National Honor Society and Advanced Diploma, and I'm looking at this now, I'm like, wow, who cares? That <laughs> was cool at the time, right? Like, oh, this means you're smart. This is wonderful. But what can be frustrating is if you feel like you've been, had these weight of expectation and potential put upon you, and it doesn't pan out into what everybody's, oh, you're going you're gonna to cure cancer. You're going to be a billionaire. And then you're just kind of living a very ordinary sort of life. That can be very difficult for you. Why is this? Why is that so hard? What's wrong with just slow and steady and being okay and, and not really going anywhere? Because God never intended his people to have partial victory. Manasseh had a stretch of land that they could live on, but as we're going to see, it was too small. 
They, they, they're, not only was their vision bigger, their needs were bigger. We need more than this. We can't live on this small section of land while we're being harassed by these guys living in the forest and we can, yeah, hold them at bay, but we can never conquer them. That's not what God intended. God intended them to go out and he said, I will send the hornet before you to drive out your enemies. And I will say, we as a church certainly have not failed. And I don't even feel like we're at a crisis moment. But I want to take this opportunity to say, we have not taken all the territory that Jesus has for us to take. We have not finished taking this promised land. There is more to come. And that, if, if the vision the Lord has been given me is any indication, there's a lot more to come. So you can sometimes, and I myself as, a, as the pastor and as a leader, and I spend most of my days thinking about these things, you can feel like this. Like, all right, we're kind of, you know, we're here, but we haven't really seen that sweeping victory that the Lord promised. Well, let's look at the wrong way to handle this, shall we? Verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people? Since all along, the Lord has blessed me. The Manasites come to Joshua and complain. They blame him. They say, why haven't you given us more territory? Don't you see that the tribe of Manasseh is half of the largest tribe in the land of Israel? Simeon is so small, they didn't even get their own territory. We're huge, and yet we've only gotten one plot of land. You've got to give us more, Joshua. It's not fair. Don't you know who we are and how God has blessed us? And Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And what's, what gives? We need more land, Joshua. And they were. The tribe of Joseph in its two pieces had been offered the largest swath of territory except for maybe the tribe of Judah, depending on where the border was determined. They had been given enough. But because of their shortcomings and their failures to overcome the rest of their land, they didn't have enough room. What they had was not sufficient to their needs because they had not taken possession of what God had intended for them. But here's the problem. They showed themselves to be very entitled, demanding more rather than taking what was already theirs. They sh rather than say, let's get the boys, let's saddle up, let's get into that forest and clear it out, burn it down if we have to. They said, let's just go to Joshua and ask for more. It's really his fault. He should have known this, that we couldn't take all this. And, and we're big. We, we only have a little bit of space and we need more. It's just not fair. Let's go talk to Joshua. What is entitlement? You hear that word thrown around a lot. Entitlement is the belief that you ought to have more than you do just because of who you are. There's something about you that entitles. We talk about the title deed to a house or to a car. I am entitled to something because of who I am. And there's all sorts of folks that have various reasons, and we love to point at this generation or that generation that is an entitled generation, or this group of people is entitled, that group of people is entitled, men are entitled, women are entitled. Nobody's got, a, got this market cornered, friends. We all can be like that. If you are still struggling with addiction in your Christian life and you start getting frustrated with God, that's entitlement. I've prayed to you over and over, God, to take these desires away, and you won't take them away. This is on you. This is your fault. That's entitled. What are you saying? You owe me something, God. Why? What have you done? What does God owe you? Not a thing. Everything you have is by his what? Grace. It's a gift. It's like a kid demanding presents on Christmas morning. It's like, these are gifts, friend. I'll put coal in that stocking. <laughs> One of these years, we're going to have to do that. Just like put the stuff in a different room and just put coal in the stockings. <laughs> or like just for one kid, that'd be better. <laughs> hey, write that down, babe. That'd be fun. <laughs> I'm trying to make a serious point here, but all right. How else can entitlement look? I've worked with these people and so have you. Somebody who works usually like a minimum wage or a lower end kind of job, especially if there's a lot of sweat involved, who is frustrated and angry and really bitter against those CEOs that make all that money. I work harder than he does. And maybe you do work harder in the sense that you're lifting more or you're you know, getting dirtier than he is. But that's an attitude of entitlement. What, what, so what? Because you, you can lift heavier boxes, you deserve a billion dollars. 
You deserve that? You're entitled to that? Or maybe you're dissatisfied with your bank account because of the degree you got. Here's another one you see. I have a degree. So why am I working at some place you don't want to be working? Why? Maybe you got a bad degree. Those exist. You deserve it. I have the paper, so therefore I, I deserve this. I've met those people before. I'm not going to, I would never go work that job. That's beneath me. I have a degree. Well, right now you have no job and that's apparently not beneath you. That's entitlement. Whatever it is, it takes all kinds of forms. How about, we've been here for five years. This church ought to be bigger. What's wrong with you, God? That's entitlement. I deserve something because of who I am. But I'm going to tell you, one of the common phrases that entitled people say is, I have done enough so that I should have. I've done after all that I've done. Here's the answer. You haven't done enough if you don't have it. You haven't done enough. I, I have done enough to where I should be making this much money. Well, apparently not, because you're not. I have done enough to where she ought to respect me by now. Well, apparently not. If you do not have something that God promised you, you have not done enough to get it. Well, God just gives us things. We don't do anything. Sorry, guys. That's not how the Bible does it. The Lord makes us promises. He shows us the land. There it is. Now go take it. He puts a sword in your hand and says, now charge. So, all right, Lord. Well, you give it to me whenever you're ready. He goes, I put a sword in your hand. Go take it. Okay, but I know it. I don't want to like, infringe on your sovereignty. My sovereignty says, go take it. I'll give it to you. So if you don't have it, you have not done enough. This poisonous attitude will make you into a small person. Very old-fashioned way of talking about people. We ought to get it back. You're acting small. You're acting petty. You're acting like somebody who is insignificant. And you're not that if you're in Christ. So you should stop acting that way. You should stop acting bitter. Because if you don't arrest that, you're going to be that person that we all have in our neighborhood who doesn't have anything good to say about anything that's ever happened in his life. I should have more because of what I did. Well, my brother is rich and famous and I'm not. Well, what makes him so much better than me? I guess he did more. I don't know. Of course, there's other things that can factor into the story. You know that. But all I'm trying to ap apply this today is we can't sit here and say the vision is greater than what we have for Calvary Chapel Trustville. We can't sit back, fold our arms and say, well, we've done enough. We ought to have it by now. We ought to have a mega church with 40 campuses by now because look at how great we are. We teach verse by verse. <laughs> You'd be surprised <laughs> how, what people will say. We're not complainers here. I like that about us. I don't want to keep that the same in the future. So we're not going to become entitled. What does Joshua have to say? Now, Joshua is not exactly the most tender of individuals in the Bible. He's this... In his 90s, probably at this point, this old warrior who uh, saw what complaining will do to a people. Remember those 40 years in the wilderness? Verse 15, Joshua said to them, Well, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest. And there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. Since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Can you hear the sarcasm in his voice? We're a great people. We deserve more land. He said, well, if you're so great, go take it. Verse 16, the people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Joshua agreed that their territory was too small. Yes, you're right. You should have more. So he urges them to go out and conquer more. He doesn't say, you know, you're right. Let me take a look at the books and, and we'll, we'll get you a new stretch of land. He goes, I already gave you more than you have. So why aren't you living there? If you're so big and strong and powerful, apparently was not pleased with the tone they took with him. He says, get out there and take control of it. But Manasseh complains, our enemies have chariots of iron. Now back then, man, that was, that was the tank of the day. You're standing there on your own two feet with a sharp stick and here comes somebody with a giant chariot with iron around it and two enormous horses bearing down on you. One guy driving, one guy shooting arrows at you. Maybe another guy in the back with a sword to chop down anybody they miss. And there's like a hundred of those charging at you. That's intimidating, isn't it? And the forest was too difficult for them. 
<laughs> the British learned the dangers of fighting in the forest during the revolution, didn't they? We're just going to sit up here in the trees and shoot your big red coats until you run away. You didn't know it was going to be patriotic this morning, did you? They were afraid to step up and finish the job. God had shown his power to them. The sun had stood still in the sky. The waters of the Jordan had parted. The walls came tumbling down. He had thrown hailstones down on the people at one point, too. God was calling in the heavy artillery. But their fear of failure kept them from trying. They were afraid. And what were they afraid of? They were afraid that it would fail. They were afraid that if I go out there, we'll lose. And we won't get it. It'd be much better for us to stay where we're safe and then go to Joshua and whine for more than to actually step out and risk what we have to gain what God intends for us. If you never try, you can blame God. Well, I haven't gone to battle because the people are too dangerous. And if God was really with us, he'd get the danger out of the way so that we could just have it. You can blame the times. People do this all the time, too. Well, I'd be happy to you know, go out and be a missionary there, but it's just really not a good time of the economy right now. And you know, I I'm just haven't really f found out what I want to do. And I'm just kind of searching right now. It's amazing how many young men, especially, in, who are called to ministry, just don't quite, just can't commit to something. Pet peeve of mine, because I used to handle a lot of the interns that came from Liberty University. I saw this a lot. What do you think God wants you to do? Hey, whatever, man. It's just whatever God wants. Okay, good. That's great. I'm glad you want to do whatever God wants. But what has he said? Oh, we'll just see. And what, what that ends up being is just drifting from one thing to the next. Look at your life. If I never step out and try to serve in a ministry at the church, I'll never be stretched to the point where I've got to grow. I kind of like these foibles and these sins that I have. You know, this, this inability to deal with people. I kind of like that I'm sort of lazy. And I know it's not good. And I know that if I were to step up and serve in like children's ministry or discovery club or whatever it is, that uh, I'd have to grow. I'd be exposed, not maybe to the world, but to me. So I'm just going to not, not do that. How many people have a business idea or a business plan, even if you've already got your, your thing established and you know what you would do? If you had a million dollars, here's what I'd do today. I'd make it happen. But you never try. So what does it become? It becomes a really cool what if to talk about with your friends at Cracker Barrel. Instead of something that you're going out and attaining. And uh, there's a whole other group of people who, if I never leave home, I can blame everyone else for all my problems. Because it's not my house. It's not my money. It's not my stuff. It's not my country. I'm just, I'm just here, still here, just kind of drifting like I've always been. And we cannot live that way. It's not a Christian way to live. Victory is assured for the Christian. But here's what you got to remember. This is the part that we get confused. Victory is assured. So when the victory is handed to me, I'll take it. No, you still have to fight the battle. The battle is real. The children of Israel fought against the Canaanites, but they had to have real swords. They had to have real battle formations, real tactics, real blood flowed, real wounds, real casualties. That's what the battle was. Real danger. If our church decides to settle in and dream big, but never try, never take a step of faith, never make a plan to execute it, what will happen to us is what has happened to countless churches across the world where we turn insular. We're only interested in maintaining the things we already have. We're only interested in keeping the relationships simpatico where they are. We're not really wanting to do more. It's much better to stand here and point the fingers outward and say how everybody else is doing it wrong and how we're the first church of the right on and nobody else can attain to us. And you can fade. There was a great message I heard at, at Liberty, which I've since heard poached, so who knows who did it first. But when they talked about a, a church turns into a museum and then it turns into a mausoleum museum of look at all the things God did and then there's nothing going on and this becomes a graveyard it's a mausoleum but here's what I want you to see from this Joshua agreed that the Manasites did not have everything that they needed like, you're right you do need more land absolutely you do need this that was not the problem the problem was not their desire for more because sometimes we do that like oh the problem is just that you want too much And as we've been making the point on Wednesday nights that's what Buddhists believe Buddhists believe that desire is the problem. And if you just stop wanting things, then you'll be happy. It's kind of a sick thing to say, isn't it? Especially to a poor person. Just stop wanting money. What do you want food for anyway? Food is just fleshly and carnal. and That's not how the Bible works. 
Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. There's a promised land laid out before us. Don't theologize your way into being content with what you have if God has intended you to have more. Verse 17 and 18. How is Joshua going to finish this up? Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So there was a rebuke first. There was a rebuke that said, don't come to me. You go do what God's already told you to do. My father used this illustration a lot. He used to use me as an illustration quite a bit from the pulpit. But he said, when God tells you to do something, keep doing it until he tells you to stop or until you finish. He says, if my son is mowing the lawn and he gets a quarter of the way through and comes in and says, hey, dad, do you still want me to mow this lawn? He says, I might not answer him. <laughs> So we say, God, uh, you told me to do this. You, you still want me to do this? Oh, why isn't God talking to me? God's like, I already told you. Keep at what I've told you to do. But now Joshua's encouraging them. He sees they're afraid. This was a great generation. They weren't like those complainers in the wilderness. They were afraid. And that was causing them to act entitled and to complain. So he comes in and he says, hey, you have great power. You're a great nation. You have the ability to do this. God is with you. He assures them of their destiny. He says, you will clear out that forest. You will take that valley. And those chariots of iron, you're going to have them in the Smithsonian Institute of the tribe of Manasseh someday. These are the guys that the Lord conquered for us. He says, don't resign yourself to what is. Shoot for what should be. Look at your life. Look at your ministry. Look at your world and say, what ought to be if the Lord is in this? What has God promised us? And go get it. Go get that. That's the attitude that Paul had. Paul and the other guys at the church of Antioch were like, all right. Remember, Antioch was the first church to have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together, the church in Syria. They're having a meeting and they're praying and the Holy Spirit says, hey, separate Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. What work was that? Well, if we're supposed to go to all the nations and preach the gospel, and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles just as much as to the Jews, then we can't be hanging around here in the Middle East. We've got to get up and go. We've got to go plant new churches. That was a completely novel idea at the time. The only new churches that had been planted up to this point were people who were persecuted running away. So he said, let's go. Let's go plant it. Let's go to Spain. Let's go to the farthest away place we've ever heard of and take the gospel there. That's Paul's attitude. Joshua's attitude, hey, if this land is ours, let's go. Let's go fight. Lord, what do you want us to do? Want us to fight? Well, then you make the sun stand still so we can finish this battle today. That's Joshua's attitude. And so many other great men of faith, they had that let's go get it attitude. In your personal life, if you're struggling with one sin, stop wishing that it would be better. Train yourself for godliness, the Bible says. Train yourself like you go to the gym, like you work at your profession, like you work at your relationships or your hobbies. Do that for your spiritual life. Take an active hand in your own sanctification. Well, I don't know if we should do that. The Holy Spirit's just... The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is what's the last one? Self-control. So taking control of yourself is one of the fruits that the Holy Spirit lives within you. Look at your career too. God's in that as well. Don't just sit there and dream about what it might be. Take some risks. Learn good practices. Constantly evaluate what you're doing. Is this the best way to go about it? Why? Because I want to live that abundant life that Jesus promised. I want to build something that is going to last and become a haven for people to work for somebody that loves Jesus. Well, they'll never be asked to do anything criminal or anything immoral. I want to be a place where we can make so much money that there will never be a church or ministry or missionary in America that goes unfunded. That every idea the church has gets to be funded because of what we're doing here. You think God's not in that? And God's call on your own life, we all have a call. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, each one should live the life to which God has assigned him and to which the Lord has called him. Grab it by the horns. Go for it. Don't be like the king that only shot a couple arrows out of the window when Elisha asked him to. He said, shoot that quiver until it's gone. If this represents victory, empty the clip, man. Get it out of there. 
Take control. Do you not realize that you also, as Joshua said, have great power? You, you have greater power because the Holy Spirit dwells within you because of the risen Jesus who intercedes before the Father for you right now. Ephesians 3, 20-21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Or think. Do you like that? You cannot out-daydream Jesus. If you've got big plans and big ideas and big thoughts for your life and your ministry in this church, they're smaller than what the Holy Spirit can do. And how does that come? According to the power at work within us. It's not like we just sit there and, and wait and we be like one of those gurus that are just going to sit with our arms like this and our legs crossed and, oh, there, it happened. I'm going to manifest some stuff. That, that's pagan. That's not Christian. Christians say, the Lord is with us. Let's get out of the boat and walk on the water. That's what we do. Jesus did not save you to sit at home. He called you out to a great adventure called life. And as Christians with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, saved by grace, we're the only ones that really get to live it as it was intended. And this church will not settle for what might come. We're going to get up and we're going to go get it. That is what we are going to do. I am thrilled with what God has done here. I love telling the stories. I could tell more stories. We could have a whole week where I'm just going to talk about the online ministry and what God's done through that. People, we had like 30 books downloaded in India. No idea who that was. One of the biggest countries that listens to our online messages is Singapore. I don't know anybody from Singapore. You have no idea what the Lord is doing. But I'm not satisfied with it, meaning I'm okay just to have it like this for the rest of time. There is more to come. There is more territory for this church to take that God has established for us. For example, I still feel that our church attendance is small for the area in which we're living in. And I know that the church growth movement had all sorts of weird, perverse things that they brought into the church in order to have numbers for numbers sake. But we must never forget the fact that in the book of Acts, if we want to do it the way the book of Acts did it, the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And more people in the church means more people hearing the word of God, more people being prayed for, more children being discipled and then sent back to the schools and the neighborhoods where they live. I want to see more people here. I want this place packed up, people sitting on the floor. I'm being able to find a place to sit because they're thirsty for the Word and for the Holy Spirit. Many people don't even know we're here. It kills me. And one of the most common things I hear is, I didn't know there was a Calvary Chapel here. I would have been here five years ago. It's like, oh man, what do I got to do, right? That's something that we've still got to do. This church, we're doing great. I said we're doing good. But we still need to take the Spirit seriously. We still need to prioritize prayer more. We still need to lean into our spiritual gifts and use them more. We still need to be unafraid to ask the Lord for healing and for miracles more than we have. Because that's what the Spirit, the Spirit said through the Word. That's what we believe here as a church. And stop worrying about looking like somebody else who's doing it wrong. Just do what the Word has said. We can always do more and we can always do better. I can always improve as a preacher. And I, every time I say something like that, I'm not fishing for comfort here, all right? Michael Jordan had a coach. He was always improving. No, I'm not saying I'm the Michael Jordan of preaching here. I'm, what I am I realize how that sounded. What I'm saying is even the best at what they do are constantly trying to get better and better and better. And if this is what God has called me to do, I've got to get better and better and better to do it better than I did last year and the year before. I, for your sake, I hope I'm a better Bible teacher now than I was when I first come down here. And the same thing for you in your life. But we are not entitled like Manasseh. We're not going to sit here and say, oh, it's coming. It's going to come any day now and just sit around and then complain, God, why haven't you given us more stuff? If there's more to come, there's more to do. We don't get it. I've done enough. You haven't if you don't have it. What are we going to see? What's the next thing we're going to see? We're going to see this church grow to two services. We're going to have so many people coming here that won't be able to fit them all at one time a day. And we're going to expand it out. We're going to pack this, ro this room with chairs. Then we're going to say, all right, we've got to do two. And then we're going to be able to serve at one and attend another. So that way everybody is not only hearing the word, but you're getting to use the gifts that God has given to you. Then we're going to find our own building. And I'm already thinking about that one. We're going to have our own. I have, this is not one of those strategically small churches. 
And people will say things like, well, I'm not saying we want to become a mega church or anything like that. Why not? Well, hey, if, I don't mind saying this. It might sound prideful, but this is the faith that I have. This church needs to be a mega church. Why? Because I know what we're going to do. We're going to stand up and preach the word the same way we always have. We're going to emphasize prayer the way we always have. We're going to emphasize the gospel above all else. We're going to take a stand against creeping immorality in the world. And more people need to hear that than are already hearing. I want to see this thing just blow up. I want to see more of these things that we're doing bigger and better. We're already seeing it some. Zach just came on staff this last month. And by the way, I never took the time to properly commend and thank you all for that. This is a tithing church, and God bless you all for that. The people of this church give financially, which is your responsibility as a Christian. I know it's awkward to talk about, but Paul says if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow much, you're going to reap in abundance. And that's what this church has done. Thank you, and God bless you. Your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven for that. But Zach and I have already taken a whole day and gotten together and thought, all right, what can we do better? What maybe needs a tweak? What needs a change? Now that there's two of us here full time, what can we improve? What can we move around? We're not tied to anything except for the scripture and the Holy Spirit and all the, the doctrines that the church has. But we'll, we'll change anything up. We, we have goals that we want to see achieved, but we, we're trying to figure out how to facilitate them because we don't feel like it's unspiritual to have administration. One of the spiritual gifts is the gift of administration. And I hope Zach has that because he's going to need it. <laughs> Goals, by the way, that include new Calvary Chapel church plants all over the state of Alabama. All the California boys just want to go to the beach. That's fine. Most of the, most of the Calvary Chapels are from California. That's why that's funny. And they always go to like Florida and, you know, God called me here. Like, well, you, you can go other places, you know, friend. But I mean, come on. Tuscaloosa needs a Calvary Chapel. Y'all know they need a Calvary Chapel. Some of you are like, yeah, so does Auburn. Yeah, they do too. <laughs> Right? Gardendale needs its own Calvary Chapel eventually. Homewood needs its own Calvary Chapel. There's this whole state that's just empty of people that are not teaching the word verse by verse and don't have a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Not that they're all bad, but if I think we got a good thing and I want to share it with more people. This means evaluating our outreaches, positive choices, the prison ministry, all that. Doing them better, doing them smarter. What's working? What's not working? Where do we need to put more attention and more resources? Where do we need to do less? Whatever is working, that's what we're going to chase. The missions of this church. We're going to continue to do more world missions. We're going to continue to go to Uganda. We want to get to Peru. We're going to go to Nepal eventually. I'm sorry I couldn't take anybody with me this time, but we're going to do that. We have opportunities in Israel that we're trying to chase down. We're going to do it. We're going to increase our reach on the radio, too. We've already started talking about this. We want to get a better time. We want to get some start praying for this. At the end of this year, when our contract comes up, I want to try to get us a drive time spot on the air, maybe even twice a day. It's expensive, but I think we can do it. I want to see us on other radio stations, too. The Lord has dropped two in our lap for free already, so maybe we just pray the Lord drops a few more in our lap. Our online ministry is going to continue to grow. We're already expanding to live streaming on YouTube and Facebook. We're starting to look at other places, other platforms we can put stuff, to use more of the social media, to put more uh, videos and podcasts and things out there. Why do I want to do that? Because you go online, you can find Christian crazy real easy, can't you? And it, it kills me that that is, that if you want to go look at Bible prophecy, you're going to find some wackadoodle that you should not be listening to about Bible prophecy. What does the Bible say about this moral issue? And you've got, you know, some guy with his pronouns in his bio telling you about what the Bible says about this and that. Or you've got other folks that are, they might be Christian, but they've got strange, weird doctrines that ought not to be propagated. There's a, there's a need for normal, orthodox, evangelical stuff on the internet. And we're going to do it. That's a worldwide reach. This little church here can reach anybody all over the world. We're going to continue to develop resources. I'm working on another book with Nanda right now. I'm writing his biography. Isn't that cool? If you all don't know Nanda's story, you're going to love it. He was a communist revolutionary, trained to be a Hindu priest who got saved, and now he trains pastors. I said, Nanda, how many times have you been arrested? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Give me a number. I'm trying to write a book here. Uh, at least 30. <laughs> at least 30? <laughs> Because the world needs to know that story. We're going to continue to, this isn't changing. We're going to continue to teach the Bible. We're going to teach all the way through it, verse by verse, and then we're going to do it again. 
because there'll be new people that haven't heard all of it. We're going to continue to rely upon the Holy Spirit. We've already got plans and prayers in place to make prayer an even bigger part of what we do here as a church, not just reserving it to the Sunday night service, but that's what we do. My father's house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. So we're going to do it. This means more people coming through the doors who need the love of Jesus. We've got to continue to love one another, to have not coming to church to get my social needs met, coming to church to love somebody walking through the door that maybe is coming in for the first time. Who knows what stories walk through those doors that look very nice and put together with a nice smile and a firm handshake. You don't know what somebody's hiding. They need the gospel. With the grace, to continue to treat each other with grace. Praise the Lord. We have never had a church split. We've not had anybody rise up and make a whole lot of trouble. The board has always been unanimous in our decisions. That's not normal. That's the grace of Jesus Christ. Not just being poured out upon us, but showing it to one another. That's got to continue. We want to affect our city. We want to affect our country through disciple-making disciples. We want to build our lives on the gospel. And I want to lead the way, not personally, us. Because I know that this is a place that is committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. And those are the kind of people that should be leading the way. And I do not mind standing up here with the, with the eyes of faith and saying, that's where the Lord is going to take us. Where we're going to set the tone, not just for this city, not just for this state and this country. We can set the tone all around the world the way that God has it set up now. And you might think, well, that seems a little, a little arrogant. That seems a little, well, we, aren't there enough churches? Aren't there enough people? I'm going to read you some stats here. I don't do a lot of stats, but these are some that really ministered to me the first time I read them. As I read this, I want you to remember that this is from a book written in 2010. And this was the most recent data available in 2010. So imagine 13 more years of these trends and throw COVID into the mix. Okay. I'm just going to read these three paragraphs. In the spite of the rise of American megachurches, no county in the United States has a greater church population than it did 10 years ago. During the last 10 years, combined membership of all Protestant denominations declined by 9.5%, 4.5 million people, while the national population increased by 11.5%, 24 million people. So, Church membership went down by 4.5 million, and the population went up by 24 million. In 1990, 20% of Americans attended church on any given Sunday. By the year 2000, only 18% attended church. That percentage is, in, is still in decline, and if this trend is not turned around, it will not be long before only 6% of Americans attend church every week. The recent increase in the number of churches, the church planting movement that so many people criticize, is only about one-eighth of what is needed just to keep up with population growth. As a result, even though America has more people, it has fewer churches per person than at any time in its history. And while the number of churches in America increased by 50% in the last century, the population increased 300%. And there are now nearly 60% fewer churches per 10,000 Americans than there were in 1920. According to the numbers he shared in 2010, he said for every American to fill a church, if every American went to church only with the churches we have now, each church would need to be about 950 people. Ten years before that, there about 350 people. I can only imagine that it has gotten worse since then. Does America still need churches? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Does it still need ministries? Yes. Does it still need Bible teaching? Yes. Just to keep up with the growth of population. The church is going down while the population is going up. And those not, that, that produces a separation very quickly. What we're doing matters. I can't tell you how many people said snide things to me when they found out I was going to come down here and plant a church. Actually, it was closing on my first house. And the realtor felt the need to ask this question. What do we need another church down here for? The church over there, the church over there. This church back there, well, what, what, what are you going to do that's so different? Now, I had a nice religious answer to that question. But if you want to be real, it's like, yeah, we might have a lot of churches, but this is a fast-growing city, and if we don't plant more churches to keep up with that, it's going to be less church than it was before. The only three countries that are less churched by population than America are India, China, and Indonesia. There are more people not going to church living in America than every country in the world except for three. 
Is this necessary? Yes, it is. It totally is. I had somebody else say, wow, you're kind of young to be a pastor, aren't you? And I said, really? <laughs> I said, the Bible doesn't say anything about age. In fact, it says not to let anybody look down on me because I'm young. Well, I'm not really interested in religion anyway. I don't know why people feel they need to express their... Do you do that to other people? You know, and like, what do you do for a living? Oh, you know, I, I work at a bank. Oh, well, I think banks are stupid and anybody that works there is an idiot. <laughs> are, are you like a, you know, like a financial expert? No, I really don't care about economics. I just have an opinion about what you do for a living. Does America need pastors? Yeah. Does it need servants? Yes. Does it need ministries? Yes. Does it need churches? Yes. So here we are. Lord, I look at our work that we're doing, Jesus. We need more space. Lord, we need more reach and influence. But we do not, friends, look down on what's happening now. Zechariah 4.10 says, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Calvary Chapel Trustville. The Lord is going to build something. The Lord is going to build something huge. And everybody that looked back, oh, but it's so small. The number of people I met who told me, oh, I'd love to visit your church. I just don't know if I could come to a church that's in a hotel. Call me when you, you know, have a building. Oh, you know, storefront churches don't really do much for me. You know, it's when you have your own space. People play that game to the end of time, right? I, we don't despise the day of small things, though. And these are still the day of small things. Bigger than they were. But man... Just think about what God is going to do. It's been five years, but in five years from now, those forests and those valleys are going to be ours. The Lord is going to lead us out to greater things because we are still committed to Christ. We're still submitted to the Holy Spirit and we're still preaching the word and the Lord will always honor that. But we've got to have that let's go get it attitude. Not entitled, not complaining, not despairing, but suiting up and saying there's a battle to be won. Let's go win it.